The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and Robbie Gallaty of Replicate led a track called Creating and Sustaining a Disciple Making Movement. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org. At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. Now here's today's track session. As we talk about uh, making disciples, in the previous session on our track, we talked about the discipleship pathway. And just as a quick kind of... uh, For those of you that were in there, you know, so I'm not going to go too far into it, but I just want to say there's four parts on the discipleship pathway. Four steps is not really the right word, but four elements, and that is congregation. So Jesus had the 120, right? Uh, Community, Jesus had the 12 disciples. Core, Jesus had Peter, James, and John for that smaller group. And then crowd, Jesus addressed the crowds at times. So those four elements make up what we would call the discipleship pathway. And the way it looks in most churches, you have Sunday morning worship where you're preaching essentially to your crowd or your congregation, I should say. Um, You have your Sunday school or small groups or life groups, whatever your church calls them. That is your biblical community, your 12, your groups of 12. And then your discipleship groups, um, your groups of three to five, generally this is what churches don't have in place that we would suggest that you do. Again, not to uh, revisit that first session, but those discipleship groups of three to five, um, that's the Peter, James, and John, and Jesus for those specific times of ministry, five specific times to be exact. And then the crowds is just that missional opportunity that you have to go across your street, to go across the world, to share the gospel as you live it out daily. And so that discipleship pathway, we'll address here in a minute how that connects with the marks of a disciple. But I want to start by asking you a couple of questions. One is, how successful right now do you think the church is in making disciples? Anybody? Not very. Any other answers that are different from that? <laughs> different from that. I would agree wholeheartedly. We, we are not making disciples. And so one thing we could do is throw our hands up in the air and say, we're not doing it. I'm fed up. I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm moving on. The other solution is to come to something like discipleship.org or to, to you know, read the scripture, understand what Jesus is saying, and then go back to our congregation, go back to the people we lead and invest in discipleship, right? Um, Just real quick, my name is Chris Swain. I work with Replicate Ministries. Replicate.org is our website. We have a podcast called Making Disciples. Some of you may have heard of or listened to or downloaded. Um, Replicate exists to help the local church make disciples who make disciples. And so our calling as a ministry is to go to the local church and help you create this discipleship pathway. Evaluate and gauge the success of that pathway through this marks of a disciple assessment that we'll go through here in a moment. Um, I, I, I say those things, so I just want you to know who I am when I'm talking, and so you can be, be a little bit more aware, who is this guy? Um, so that, that's kind of what I do, and I love it. I get to work on this kind of thing every single day as my full-time job, as well as Christ has called me to make disciples. So it's definitely cool that I get to do both of those things uh, as a vocation, but also it's a lifestyle that we should all have, and we know that. So let's look real quick at a crazy statistic. Some of you have heard this before. If you've listened to our podcast, you're aware of it, but the largest Protestant denomination on the planet 
is uh, Southern Baptist. It may not be that way for long, but that is currently the case. Southern Baptist in 1997 had 5 million people attending on a weekly basis, an average of 5 million people attending weekly services. Um, in the last 20 years, Southern Baptists have baptized 7 million people, 7.1 million people. 7.1 plus 5 million is what? Anybody want to do the math? A lot, right? <laughs> it's more than 5 million. And yet, if you look at Southern Baptist Convention right now, their average weekly attendance in their services, you want to guess what it is? It's 5 million. That's right. It's changed nothing. And so, one of the reasons that we, we like to look at this statistic, and, and I say like, we don't like to look at this statistic. It's disgusting. It's the opposite of doing what Christ has called us to do, right? It's the opposite of multiplying as disciples. But the reality is if we don't look at statistics like this, which I would say the SBC, being the largest Protestant denomination, is a good one, thank you, is a good one to, to reference because it, it is one that we can say, okay, this is a big chunk of people trying to do something around the gospel, around making disciples. So even if it's a you know, non-denominational, um, maybe some other Protestant denominations, whatever the denomination, this is kind of the track that we see the church taking. A lot of numbers, a lot of attendance, a lot of decisions, but not a lot of deep disciple making, not a lot of growth in the life of an individual versus maybe the growth of a Sunday morning, the growth of an event, the growth of a program, right? And so why do you think we're here? I mean, we're, we're sitting in this room because we are interested in and care about discipleship or we would not have come to a conference called discipleship.org. So I know that you are with me in this, but what is the challenge? You know, why and how did we get here? And uh, I like to share the story because I think it's a great illustration of why we are here. Um, years ago, I got to serve in the Marines, loved it. I lived in Japan. Thank you, sir. I lived in Japan uh, for a while and I went to eat uh, with a friend of mine. She invited me to her house and we were gonna eat sushi. Um, I am from Arkansas, and so my favorite type of food is fried and fried fried, you know, double fried, uh, whatever. Sushi, on the other hand, is something that is kind of the opposite of that spectrum. So not as interested in that. And I was a little nervous about going there, you know, what are we going to eat? And when I got there and I saw this uh, offering on the table, I realized that I was going to struggle through this meal. At the same time, I wanted to be nice. I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to be that, that kind of guy who's like, okay, I, I know that this isn't my thing, but I, I want to man up and be okay with this and try to eat this and, and, and expand the horizons of uh, Japanese and American love for one another, right? So I go to this meal and I'm sitting at the table and I'm looking at this food and I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? And on the table, there's a two liter of Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper is my favorite drink. And, you know, at the time I thought this is my salvation. Here I have this doc, Dr. Pepper that, you know, I can take a bite of this sushi, which I know I'm going to dislike, and then I can just chug some Dr. Pepper and it's going to cover up the flavor of this raw, whatever it is that I'm eating, right? So in my mind, I was like, I have the solution. This is perfect. I'm going to be okay. All the trepidation I felt, all the fear that I had slipped away because I had the two liter of Dr. Pepper. It was there. And I was excited about it. So we sat down and this uh, friend of mine's father was there. And he had this little thing. This was back in the 90s before you could like, get on your phone and, and like see what things really were. So he had this little device. He would type in and it would tell him what it was that I was about to eat. And then he would tell me. So I reached down and picked something up. And he said, Seabream. 
I don't know what that is. Didn't sound too bad. Threw it in my mouth and I grabbed for the drink of Dr. Pepper to kind of wash it down. Well, at that moment, I realized that the glasses we were using were like tiny little like shot glass sized glasses to drink out of. So I drank my little Dr. Pepper and that was enough to wash it down, but now it was empty. I set it back on the table. My friend immediately filled it back up, you know, just like that. And I thought, well, that's nice. I can handle it. She's like, no, no, I'm, I'll handle it. So I took another bite. I went for another drink. She immediately filled it up. And I realized this is going to be awkward because she's going to be filling this glass every time I take a bite, right? Especially because my plan, my strategy was to kind of wash out the flavor of the sushi. So I pick up this other item. I'm thinking in my mind, okay, I'm just going to power through and eat two or three of these and then go for the Dr. Pepper. As I'm placing it in my mouth, this, uh, this guy says, eel eggs, eel eggs. And I just remember thinking, this is the most disgusting thing I've probably ever eaten in my life. And that girl had to fill that glass like three times in a row. It was a complete and utter failure. Luckily, I was able to keep it down. But what I learned in that moment, what I gathered is I had the right substance in the Dr. Pepper, right? And, and I, I had it doing what it needed to do. But the failure was I had the wrong mechanism to deliver that substance, right? Right. And when you think about the church, when you think about what's been happening in the church, that's exactly the issue. We have the right substance. The gospel is the gospel. We, we don't need to add to, take away, or change the gospel, right? The problem is the way we are delivering the gospel, the way we are making disciples, the way we are impacting people in ministry is not effective. It hasn't been effective. You're like, Chris, it has been effective. No, it hasn't. I can show you the statistics that it has not. But I have a feeling I don't even need to show you the statistics. I think you're here because you understand that and you believe that. So how do we fix this? How do we change this? You know, another part of the issue is if you look at the 20th century, I know the statistics have been out there for a while, the top three books in the 20th century, I think shed a little bit of light onto why we are where we are in terms of how we gauge success in the church. Most churches, when you think about it and how we gauge success, what are the things that we look at? Anybody? Attendance, money, what else? Just those two things? Baptism, decisions. And we had this many. How many of you? Yeah, all the B's, right? Yeah. If you, I mean, if you look at social media, you're like, why does someone have to say 172 kids this week at so-and-so? I'm like, why can't you just say 170, you know, 180, 200? 150. Why does it have to be exactly 172? What is that doing for you when you communicate that? Or if I look at a picture of a group that's meeting and I see this wide shot of this room of all these people and it's like perfectly cropped between who is here, you know, over here and all the empty seats are not there. Why is that? That we want to project, look at the success of this event because all these seats are filled. That is the metric that we use, these business metrics and mindset. And if you look at the top three books of the 20th century, it's actually quite shocking if you think about it. 20th century, that's a hundred years, a century, in case you're bad at that kind of thing like I am math. The top three books were Prayer by Rosalind Rinker. Anyone familiar with that book? It's a pretty big book. Um, the second one is Mere Christianity. Anyone familiar with that book? Mere Christianity, um, C.S. Lewis. The third one is called Understanding Church Growth. Understanding Church Growth. And I've got nothing against church growth. And, and I want to understand church growth. But here's the reality. Of all the books in 100 years on, in, in the theology section, one of the top three is understanding church growth. 
I mean, that's pretty surprising. That means a lot of people purchased that book. A lot of people who had these types of things in mind were like, this is crucial. This is important. And I'm not saying church growth is not important. I'm simply saying it shows you how we as a culture have shifted what we measure and how we measure with the things that are not necessarily as important as the others. And so we've got to look at this through a new lens. And we have to understand that the issue at hand is not misunderstanding church growth, but seeing it through the lens that will help us. Look, look at the outcome of this, by the way. I think this is interesting. Recently, Barna did some research, and the question was, have you heard of the Great Commission? Have you heard of the Great Commission? He asked church attendees. So these are not lost people walking down the street. Hey, have you heard of the Great Commission? These are people sitting in the pews and padded seats of our churches every week. And seven, uh, let me look at the numbers here because that would be more helpful than uh, just looking at uh, the words yes here. But I want to get these right because I want you to know just how crazy these statistics are. 51% said no. 51% of the people who attend our churches said they have never heard of the Great Commission. 6% were unsure. Yes, but I'm not sure what it means, 25%. And then yes, and I can tell you what it means, 17%. That means that all but 17% of the people in our churches don't understand the Great Commission. And that only 25 plus 17, whatever that difficult math is, have actually even heard or say that or claim that they know what that they've heard of the Great Commission. This is a challenging statistic because, man, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Isn't that what our, isn't that what our churches are supposed to be for? And at least half of the people are unaware. Half of the people are unaware. And so we have to shift what we're doing, as you know, in order to make disciples. We have to change how we operate. And so when we talk about and replicate implementing a discipleship pathway, part of that pathway is to help people understand where they are moving. One of the things we talk about at Long Haul is not just vertical statistics, vertical goals. You know, what's a vertical goal? Man, we got a thousand people. We'd love to have 1500 people by next year or whatever. You're just throwing numbers out there. We got a hundred people coming to church next year. We want 120. That's kind of a vertical goal. We've seen this many people share the gospel. We'd love to see that many people share the gospel. We want to see some horizontal goals as well. How do we move people from attending and being in a congregation and coming one hour a week, kind of that drive-through church, to plugging in and being a part of biblical community? What is our goal to move people from here to there? Because until we focus intently on that aspect of our ministry, we're not going to see people move through it in that way. Until we as leaders think of it like that, our people are not going to think of it like that. And they're not going to understand how to go from A to B, from congregation to community, from community to core, from core to crowd, and so on and so forth. And so we have to address that. Part of the issue is we don't understand the Great Commission, and the Great Commission is built on two imperatives. Anybody know what they are? Make disciples. I love this group. You guys know all this stuff. Make disciples. So when we think of the Great Commission for a lot of time, I grew up and I, was, I would go to church and we would have, go ye therefore. That's the Great Commission. Go. The Great Commission is to go. Should we go? Absolutely. It's part of the Great Commission. But what are we going to do? We're going to make disciples, right? And what are we going to do with those disciples? 
We're going to baptize them. We're not just baptizing anyone. We're baptizing the disciples that we made. What else will we do? We're going to teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Well, how do we do that? We have to know what Jesus has commanded. And we're teaching who? The disciples that we've made. And then the second is what? Behold or lo. Some versions say, I will be with you all. So the good news is that Jesus is with us in the midst of this disciple making process. This isn't something that you and I are doing alone. Let me go out there and try to make this happen. Jesus is with us. He has authority to do it. He's given us authority to do it. And we haven't done it, but we need to do it. And so I want to walk through all of these things. And I wanted us to look at some of these things to see where we have come from in terms of how we've gauged success. Why is it that a giant room filled with people has made us feel like, man, we have won? Why is it that we've looked up to thought leaders who have thousands in attendance at a Sunday morning preaching event and thought, that is the kind of person I want to be? Now, I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that person having a giant crowd of people. That's awesome. But what we do with those people is as critical as gathering them together, right? What we do with them is critical or we end up right here. We end up with these things. And so what we need to do is move and transition to a new way, a new metric to assess success in the life of a disciple. To see that horizontal growth, so to speak. If I said to you, hey, coming to church every week, that's the height of spiritual maturity. You all would say, well, that's not true, right? The Pharisees were there every week. That wasn't the height of spiritual maturity. So that's that vertical growth. We have to look at a new way to do it. So um, in your notes, you're going to be, uh, I'm going to ask you to write a few things down. I'm going to ask you to share with some people in a moment. It's going to get a little awkward in the room. It's going to be okay. You're going to love it, I promise. But to get there, let me apologize for my little guy's face here uh, on the front end. We've got to kind of do a self-assessment. So this next portion of our, our, our teaching here in this time will be you kind of asking yourself some questions and navigating through that. And then we're going to talk about that. So here's the first one, missional. Missional. If you want to write that down, these are the marks of a disciple, and these are the things that we want to measure and gauge. Missional being the first one. Living missionally means what? Living with a mindset and operating in such a way that you are leading others to Christ, you are sharing the gospel. In every way, you're looking around, okay, here's where I work. I know this guy. I'm praying for that person. I'm sharing with my words what the gospel is when I have the opportunity with my actions, the way I live. Obviously, he sees that as well. That's one aspect of it. How much do we live missionally individually? So here's one way that we can gauge that this afternoon. I want you to write down on your paper, on the back of your map, in your phone, Everybody needs to have this answer because you're going to discuss it in a moment. Um, two people who have lived missionally towards you. Let me give you an example. Um, my Aunt Ratha, when I was a little kid, prayed for me. She invited me to church. She shared the gospel with me for, with the way that she lived and with her words. I was not a believer, but she was living missionally towards me. So I would write my aunt's name in there. I had a friend who invited me to church. Hey, come see me get baptized. That is the least uh, effective gospel sharing, but yet it was the most effective for me, right? Uh, missionary dating worked for me, don't tell the kids. Uh, but I would write her name in there because I never would have gone to church. I never would have been in that opportunity to hear the gospel if I hadn't been invited. So I'd write those two names down. So you write down a couple names, two people in your life before you came to Christ who reached out to you and lived missionally towards you. Could be parents, could be relatives, a friend, and when you're done writing those names down, just give me that blank stare. 
So I know that you are done. Again, you will be sharing this with someone, so please have some answers. Even if you make them up, I won't tell anyone. Then next, over on the right, um, I want you to write down two names, two people that you have been living missionally toward. So maybe it's a relative. Um, many in my family are not believers on my side of the family. Um, I've got different brothers, sister-in-law, those kinds of things where I'm trying to share the gospel with them. I'd probably write one of their names in there. Um, my neighbor is a young widow. His husband passed away in their 30s. He's got two young boys. That's a family that my family is living missionally toward on a consistent basis. So I'd probably write Megan in there as one of the names that I would put. Two names of two people you are living missionally toward currently. So two people who are living missionally toward you and two people you're living missionally toward currently. And then just give me again that blank stare and I'll know it's time to move on. All right. Love those blank stares. Next up, we have accountable. Accountable. So I want you to write down the name of three people that you currently are living in accountability with. They can ask you the tough questions. They have permission to ask you the questions that no one else can ask. Or let me put it this way. When they ask you, you answer honestly. You know, at 2 a.m. when you struggle with a problem, these are the names of the people that you're going to call. Maybe if your spouse is in here with you, you would write their name in one of these uh, boxes or on your sheet or in your phone. Just a free you know, giveaway there, suggestion that you may want to have. Three names of people you are living in accountability with who can ask you the tough questions. Someone you're going to when you struggle. When things get tough, these are the people you're connecting with to talk through those issues. Three names. All right. Y'all got that blank stare down is all I can say. That is, that's some good stuff. All right, so here's what we're going to do. This is the awkward part of this session. I apologize, but it's just, just the way it's got to be. In a second, I'm just going to ask you guys to stand up. I'm going to ask you to find someone that you don't know. And uh, I want you to share with them the names of the people and then the little bit of the, the story behind it. You know, why are you sharing with that individual? Who was it that lived missionally towards you? Why are these people in your accountability group? Or and if they're not in an accountability group, why are these people people you're living in accountability with? Um, an easy answer would be, hey, this is my wife. We're constantly talking through some issues. That's, that's one good answer just to give you a freebie there. So everybody stand up. Let's do it all at the same time. It'll make it much easier, I promise. And you just find somebody. You may be sitting next to somebody. It's perfect. All right, if you will have a seat, we will move on to the next section. You can continue sharing in a moment because you will have to do this again. I apologize in advance for those who are introverted like myself. Um, you have to talk to other people in this session. I will say that the group on the other side of the wall just came and told me we were being too loud. So in our, <laughs> in our next uh, share time, if we could do so a little quieter somehow, I don't know. Um, so that is the missional and accountable piece of the marks of a disciple. And again, we'll conclude at the, and when we conclude at the end, we'll kind of map out how this looks for your individual groups, yourself and your church. But let's move on to the next section. So here we will talk about reproducible. That's the R and the one that I, I rarely can spell properly on a whiteboard anyway. And so when we talk about reproducible, we're talking about someone who carries your spiritual DNA, someone who you have invested in, and you've seen that investment in their life. 
Um, so I want you to think of three names, three people who carry your spiritual DNA. Here's a little uh, cheating secret that you can go with, and that is if you have some kids that you've invested in, you could write, you can write your kids as one of the three answers. All right. So if you have seven kids, you can only still write kids as one of those answers. So see, I knew I had three kids for some reason. Um, so the names of three people you would say you've invested in that carry your spiritual DNA. Three names. Right. Oh. <laughs> I love whatever that group is. I love them. I got no problem with them whatsoever. Um, the next part of the marks is communal. So this is living in biblical community with one another. This is something we saw Jesus do throughout his ministry, um, specifically with the 12. And so ultimately we want to ask the question, how has biblical community impacted your life? So I want you to think of three ways biblical community has made an impact on you. So I have a life group that meets on Sunday nights. Me and my wife lead college students. Um, and so we're investing in them. And, and I would say one of the things that, uh, one thing that I would take away from that specific group is they are constantly sharpening me theologically. Um, if anyone has a question that is difficult, it is a, a freshman in college. They have the toughest questions, I feel like, other than my, you know, four-year-old daughter at the time, you know, can God make a rock so big even he can't lift it, you know, kind of question, which I'm like, if so, I hope he does it over your head. I don't want to hear that kind of question. But college students can ask some tough. So it, it forces me to immerse myself in theology because I know they're going to be asking these questions and, and they're not easy questions. They're the tough questions. So one way that my current um, life group, my biblical community that I'm involved in right now impacts me is that. So that's just one suggestion. Think of three ways over the years, it doesn't have to be your current group that you're involved in, but your Sunday school group, your small group, your life group, cell group, whatever kind of group you're a part of, whatever type of biblical community you're involved in, how, what, what are three ways that that group has uh, impacted your life towards spiritual growth? Just write those three ways down. And uh, I always get the question, you know, what if I don't have three ways? Well, then write down two ways. Uh, write down one way. You're, you may not have answers to it. The very first time I took this, uh, or I walked through this assessment myself, I didn't have any, any reproducible. I had no people I could think of that I had invested my life in for the purpose, intentionally, of them and going doing the same. So I just wrote my kids' names in there and hoped that I could, you know, skate on through. Not saying you would do that. I'm just saying I did that the first time. Once you have your three names and your three ways that biblical community has impacted you, we're going to do the same thing we did before this time if you can, find someone different, but try to talk a little quieter if you can so I don't get in trouble again with this lovely group to my right. But uh, yeah, you find one, or one person, stand up, find somebody. If you would not mind having a seat, I love you and I need you to sit down. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I, I'm not kidding. I do love you. And you still, and you need to move on to this next section, or we won't be done. So the final uh, part of the Mark's um, acronym, if you will, is scriptural. And so here, what we're trying to look at is how are people engaging with the Word of God? Um, Lifeway just did a 20-year study, actually a 10-year study on discipleship. There's some data in there from 20 years, but a 10-year study on discipleship. And all of the research they did pointed to Bible engagement as the number one indicator of spiritual growth. Bible engagement as the number one indicator of spiritual growth. Now, that's not just Bible reading, okay? So, what we're not trying to do is say, hey, open up your Bible and read it, and then open up and read it again, open up. That's great. 
but engaging with it means doing, doing what it says. And so when we talk about the discipleship pathway, and part of that is that discipleship group element, we're trying to spur one another on to apply what we read, apply what we learn. You know, so often in our culture, we want to learn some new truth and like, oh, this is awesome. I, I learned this new little nugget. Let me share it with you. But what are you doing about it? That's the question. And that's one of the reasons we are where we are when it comes to that business metric mindset of how we gauge success in our church. Because that knowledge is something that once again, it's just kind of out there and we have it and that's neat, but it doesn't demand that we do anything if no one is holding us accountable, right? And so we want to be accountable to what we read. So scriptural. So what, what I want you to do, and you're not going to have to share this with anybody uh, the way we just did, so you can breathe a sigh of relief. But I want you to think of three passages that you would say, man, these are three critical passages in the Word as to how God has worked in my life recently. How God has worked in my life recently. So you might say, man, I, I was reading through Philippians and Philippians 2, read through it before, but just recently, this is something that, that God has shown me as I've read it, as I've invested in it. Um, for me, Proverbs 16, lately, I've been going through with my discipleship group trying to memorize that, and that's something that has been like really uh, sharpening me. So I'd write down Proverbs 16. You don't have to write the reference. You can just write the passage. You can, uh, I, don't, I don't expect you to know from memory the, the verse necessarily, but I do want you to think about that as well. How well have you hidden God's word in your heart? How much time have you committed to scripture memory? I mean, think of all the things that you have memorized in your life. And I know with this right here, a lot less of that is happening, right? I don't know if I can tell you any phone number of anybody I know except my wife. And that's only because she's had that number for a long time, right? Uh, so we don't remember a lot of things, like even like how to get to somewhere. I, I put in Google earlier to go to a restaurant and my service here is terrible. And I was like, I don't know what to do now. How do I get to where I'm trying to go? I can't do it anymore. That's the kind of crutch that we rely on these days in every area of our life. And in the church, it's the same way. It's like, I don't know that I have to memorize the scripture because I can just bring it up right here on my phone or I can pull out my Bible, which is true. But at the same time, aren't we supposed to be hiding God's word in our heart? Don't we want that to be the thing that bubbles up when we struggle, when we're facing adversity, right? And so I want you to think of three passages that have influenced you and impacted you. And then I want you to think about scripture memory. I once had someone ask me, you know, who in this room has been a believer more than 10 years? Raise your hand, more than 10 years. All right, I've been more than 20 years. More than 20 years, all right. For those 20 year people, how many of you could uh, recite for me 20 Bible verses? Some of you are like, I can, I can do it right now. I don't want you to. But it's awesome that you can answer that. Most of us struggle with that and could not do that. If you said, Chris, tell me 20 Bible verses right now from, from memory, I'd be like, man, I know Jesus wept is in there. That's one, that's one I can get away with, right? The Great Commission, I could probably tell that. But ultimately, we ought to be taking in God's Word, memorizing God's Word on a consistent basis. And here's why we don't do it. We're not held accountable to it. No one is asking us, and not in a legalistic, you know, pharisaical way of, you know, do you know this and how much do you know? I'm not asking you that today. I'm asking you honestly, can you really say you're a disciple of Christ if you don't care about his word? If you don't invest in his word, if you don't take his word in consistently and at least say, man, I want to invest in this as much as I do my favorite song, right? So you'd write that down there for scriptural. And then there's three questions I want to quickly ask. The first one is this, which of these five marks was most difficult for you to fill out? Was it missional, 
difficult to know, hey, I'm really not sharing with someone. I'm really not living out the gospel in front of the people I should be. Was it accountability? When you asked me about those three names of people who are asking me those questions about my life that I should be answering consistently, I don't have that network in my life. I mean, think of the, the names of people recently who have fallen, um, big time names, right? People we've respected, people we probably all learned from who just made that wrong decision. And the question that always comes to me is, I wonder if they had anyone in their life holding them accountable. I wonder if they had anyone in their life pressing in to ask those difficult questions. We all need that, or we all are gonna go down that road, right? Yes, sir. Just one more, I'm, I'm almost there. Just give me a little bit, because we will have Q&A um, in just a second. So what is your most difficult, um, what was the most difficult one for you to fill out? For me, like I said before, is the reproducible. I couldn't think of three names of people who carry my spiritual DNA. And so I cheated and wrote my son's name in there and my daughter's and, and just hoped I was right. Okay. Next up, and this is the second question, what are you going to do about that first question? So it's one thing for us, and this is what we always do in our culture. Man, I know what my struggles are. I know where I need to grow. I know what I need to do about it. But then we don't actually take a step to do anything about it. And so the second question is, what are you going to do about that first answer? You know, if you said reproducible for me was the most difficult one, this is the step I'm going to take. This is what I'm going to do about it. Here's how I'm going to grow in this area and respond to what God's called me to do in my life. And then the second one we'll respond to in just a moment, but I want you to go ahead and write it down now. What is your number one prayer request right now? What are you dealing with? What are you struggling with? I don't want you to write down something about your spouse or family member or child, but you personally. What are you dealing with right now that you need God to move in your life and, and make an impact in some area? Some either a struggle, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a challenging thing, but what is that prayer request right now in your life? And write that down. And then we'll talk about that in just a minute at the end here. But I want to talk about how this connects to the pathway. So we talked about that in our first session, and I know for those that weren't in this first area of the track, we, we talked about how congregation is the first part of the pathway, right? Community is the second part of the pathway. Core, those discipleship groups, and then crowd, taking the gospel out, living out missionally. Where in this pathway do we see a kind of, or a missional, missional, for instance? Anybody? Crowd, crowd right? So we'd say, okay, this is where we are going to be missional. This is where our people know to be missional. What about accountability? Core. Core. So I'm just going to put ACC there because I'm not sure I could spell it in this small space. Um, but yeah, in these discipleship groups, we're giving people the opportunity to ask us, are we memorizing the word? How are we living? How are you applying what you're reading to your life? Where else does accountability happen? Where? It doesn't really happen anywhere else, does it? I mean, to some extent, it could happen in your biblical community, if your Sunday school. The, the definition of accountability? No, of community. Oh, of, of community. Here we're talking about biblical community. So we're talking about living out the one another's with each other. And typically, I would say in a church, whatever Sunday school looks like, or small group, or life group. So, I mean, it's a very broad definition. Um, man, we would want it to take place in there. Yeah, and so you can have it in there. And I'm not saying you couldn't even have it in congregation. Like you can turn to your friend here and say, hey man, how's it going? To some extent. But it's, I've, I've rarely seen a guy walk into a small group and say, hey man, I'm struggling with porn. In front of his wife, in front of every other wife, 
And some of those types of issues, I don't know that I feel good in that environment trying to help them be accountable. And so the challenge is, man, we would love to see that in here. And I think that is the, a good place for it. And in some contexts, some churches have been very effective at that. So, and that may be yours. Um, in, in the churches I've been in, there's, this is more of a surface level. And it's just, man, we don't want it to be that way, but a lot of times it, it is. But that's a good point. It can happen in here as well. And that'd be the only, pretty much the only other place it would happen within these. Uh, what about uh, accountable reproducible? Yeah, I would say both of those. So what we're trying to do in biblical communities, we're trying to reproduce biblical community. We're trying to plant groups out of the groups that we have. We're trying to get those in our group as immature in Christ to see that, hey, we've had this biblical community. We've had this Sunday school class, this small group. And now me and my wife understand the vision, the burden to reach our community. We want to step out and, and do the same thing. Um, you know, old school would be like, let's split this class and grow too, which does neither, right? It just kills the class and, and there's no growth. But I think you want to rep uh, replicate biblical community here. And then at least in our small, in our uh, discipleship group model, we're reproducing those individual people every year, every 12 to 18 months. The whole purpose of our discipleship group, or one of them, one of the key purposes is that replication. And thus our ministry name, right? Replicate. And so this is where we would see that replication happen because we can talk to our people about being evangelistic. Pastor can preach about it on Sunday, but where's the accountability for it? And even if you said, hey, are you sharing, the, sharing your faith? Oh yeah, you know, when I get the, the chance to. But in this discipleship group, I'm able to say to uh, one of my guys, Reed, you said you were praying for Bob. How's that prayer been going? Have you shared with him yet? It's been three months. What's going on? Man, that's the kind of accountability that's going to help us be more um, missional in the sense of leading to replication individually and as in, in biblical community. And then communal. Where's that one at? I mean, super easy. It's kind of in the word, right? Community. You would hope it's in there. You know, you'd hope it's in there. But that's the best place for it to be because you're trying to create that biblical community. But I think all of these can fit a little bit into that, that uh, to some extent. And then scriptural. Hopefully in all of them. Hopefully in all of them. Uh, you're having the word of God preached uh, hopefully every week and, and nothing else. And, and then in biblical community, you're teaching it. And here you're reading and applying it. So there would be three areas. So again, what we're trying to do with these marks is really examine how we're growing, um, spiritually growing as a result of what we're doing in the context of our church and our church model and our structure. And so as we walk through that discipleship pathway, these are the things we're trying to see happen. Uh, will that lead to church growth? Where a, a mature believer who understands why he's attending in the first place, I believe is going to be more consistent in why and in attendance. Who understands why they should be sharing the gospel and are held accountable to do it are going to be more likely to share the gospel. And so on and so forth in terms of that connection. So with that said, any questions? <laughs> yes, sir, in the back. Surprise. For sure. It sounds easy to say in a room, but it doesn't play out that way in real life. I think application living it out would fall under the same umbrella to me. But I'm thinking, yeah. I, I mean, I think ultimately when it comes to scripture memory, we don't want to be, you know, Pharisees about it. Like in, in, in our groups, we, we don't say, hey, man, they've got to know. When the guys come to my group, we've got to know these verses by this time. We're trying to move people from zero to something and from something to more. So my guess is, if you look at your congregation, how many people in your congregation are consistently reading the Bible most of the week, journaling in some way, and making application happen outside of what they've read, and memorizing scripture to some extent? Um, if I looked at my church, I'd say, man, that's a very small 
uh, group subset of my church as a whole. So what we're doing in our discipleship groups is we're trying to grow that group of people, multiply that group of people. So to answer your question specifically, I mean, do I want them to memorize scripture? Absolutely. But I may lead a group that's like terrible at scripture memory and we may end up memorizing, you know, five verses over the course of the year or whatever. It's, yeah, it's not, it's not about, okay, we've attained this. Again, it's moving them from nothing to something. And then as they get to something, they're going to continue to grow from there. Oh, the method in our, so in our discipleship group structure, I'm sorry, I'm assuming that you may have known that from the previous session. Um, but yeah, so basically in our structure, we're meeting once a week and we're, we're doing here journals in our readings each week. We're reading in the same places. Uh, we use foundations reading plan. You can use any reading plan you want. We meet, we spend about 10 minutes on the highs and lows of the week. And then we spend about 20 to 30 minutes sharing our here journals with one another. We spend a little time reciting our memory verse. So every week we're picking a verse and we're saying this is what we're going to remember. Um, for my group, we're going through Proverbs 16. So every week we're adding another verse and then we're trying to come back and, and go through that. I've got a, a group of college guys and, uh, and they struggle with it, just like you're saying. So each week we're reciting that within our discipleship group and, and, in a positive way, not like a, oh, you didn't do this, you failed, get out of here. But you know, like when someone's lifting weights and they can barely get the weight up and you spot them, that's what we're trying to do with our scripture memory. So throw them a verse, throw, throw, help them out in doing that and lead them to do it. And then we share our prayer requests and then we pray for one another and we ask key accountability questions at the end of our scripture uh, here journal sharing. So we like to let the scripture drive the accountability. So are there some specific questions we ask every week? Maybe, but more so, okay, we read this week in Luke three, this is what my here journal, this is what I'm responding to. So my question is read last week, you said you were going to do this. How did that go? So it's that ongoing accountability. So I'm sorry, that is the, the kind of the track on which all of these things I'm talking about run in terms of that discipleship group. That's a great question. I, I didn't understand the front end, but hopefully does that answer it? Yes, sir. And they probably shouldn't, yeah, even if they did, it's tough. Yeah. No, what we would say to that individual is, you know, join me in my life group. So, for instance, in my discipleship group, which our numbers are really like three to five is what we suggest. You can do whatever you want, but kind of looking at Jesus, Peter, James, and John, those four together. And just when you think of the relational bandwidth you have with people, how many issues can I deal with and, and people can I deal with? So the one group for one year to 18 months is that overall structure and time. Three to five guys with guys, ladies with ladies for that accountability question and how we're diving into that. And so let's say I lead someone to Christ in our group um, and they're holding me accountable to it. The, the, uh, the community is where I put them. So in my life, I'd be like, man, come to my life group. So they're still meeting with me every week. We're still going to the same church together. We're still friends. You know, being in that discipleship group doesn't exclude you from that friendship, that relationship, and that biblical community that happens in your, in your uh, life group. And so, uh, ultimately, if they're a new believer, you know, that's going to be the best place for them to start anyway, uh, I would say, um, as an on-ramp. And then, obviously, want them to, to attend weekly and hear the word preached. So, and then, at the end of that year, if I want to disciple them, or maybe they're ready to go start their own group. You know, discipleship groups, um, they're not like, hey, I'm, I've attained this level of maturity, so now I'm going to make disciples. The Great Commission is for who? Every believer or just the ones who've been Christians for 20 years, you know? So we have to ask ourselves that question. And that's why when you look at what takes place in the group, what I just kind of spelled out, none of those things are like in-depth, uh, super, I'm, I'm at this point, so now I can teach it. Obviously, we need to use wisdom, you know? Guy gets saved, boom, I'm going to start discipling people the next day. Might not be the wisest move. So you, you have to walk through that with wisdom. Um, but it may be that they get into your biblical community. They're hearing preaching each week. They're a believer. God's calling them to make disciples. 
six months later, they start their own group and, and maybe you're mentoring that a little bit, but ultimately we want to unleash every member of our church to do what Christ has called them to do. Um, we would prefer that they go through a group first, but that's not always going to be the way it happens. Um, I think right now we've got about 1,800 in our discipleship groups. And, and I couldn't tell you, you know, if every one of those leaders has been through a group. I assume that they have because of the way we launch them. Um, but I'm, I'm sure it happens where someone just, and, and sometimes it's like, hey, I just joined the church. I'm a strong believer. I know what I'm doing. I see what you're doing. And I want to start a group. And then so we offer training. Hey, here's how we do our discipleship groups. Here's what happens. And then we, in the middle of the year, we kind of come back and, hey, here, let's answer these issues. Multiplication. At the end of the year, we do another training. Here's how we multiply. Because we want to make sure we're helping them along the way. At the same time, it's what you're called to do individually um, as a believer. So, um, I would say October is open enrollment or I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily try to stagger that group that I I'm launching out. So for those I invest in the, the three guys I have right now, uh, come next May, when we're about to be finished with our group time, I'm going to challenge them to bring three to five names. We're going to start praying for those names and then we're going to launch them to go and do that. Um, and I think that every group should do that. Now, you're always going to have people starting at an off time. Again, someone may join the church or someone uh, may just be like, oh, I want to be a part of this. So I think you try to launch it at a time that's wise for the process. Um, starting in June is not going to be successful. I don't care where you're at or what you're doing. It's just not going to work as well as maybe starting in January, starting in August, just because of the cycle of life, at least here in uh, Nashville. I don't know about where, where you're at, but generally. So at the same time, I mean, again, I started my group in August. Most of our church starts in January, but college students leave in the summer and they're gone. So if I start in January, I'm missing two months, no matter what I do with those, those individuals. So you have to contextualize it. Um, but we're never afraid of people starting whenever they want to. The key for us is making sure they're in the same places. And so as a church, we're kind of going through the same plan with foundations. So generally, even if they start in August, we'd want them to jump in in that plan where it's at versus starting at the beginning of it. So as a church, we're still kind of going together through the same things. Um, but no, I don't think you, you limit the church by, by not staggering your group necessarily. You could do that. All I know is this. I didn't meet in summer. My high school discipleship group ended in May. Didn't meet with anyone in the summer. And I launched my group in August. I read the Bible less, didn't memorize any scripture, and was much less accountable in those two months than I've been in the last two years. Because that's just the natural way it is. I mean, when, when you're not in this type of environment, you're not doing these things as consistently um, because no one's asking me to. And so I would say, don't wait for that purpose necessarily, unless you know, hey, I'm going to wait, I'm going to do it here, and, and you can work through it. But I think launching them when they're ready, when the leader's ready and has the people, that's when you should launch it. As a church, you might want to pick some key times to launch globally, but you don't want it to be a program. You know, hey, here's our discipleship program that takes place on Wednesday nights between this hour and that hour. It, it just doesn't work very well that way because then it's a church program that people are attending versus you equipping someone to go out and do what Christ has called them to do. So maybe that answers your question, maybe not. Man, you know, for us at our church, we've got 6,500 in attendance. So it's a small, I want to say small, but that's not all of our people, but it's about a third of our people. So what we're seeing is just a uh, kind of a movement, for lack of a better word, of people who are like, man, for the first time I'm memorizing scripture. I've never done it before. And, and so I think our attendance has been impacted. We know we're growing at a steady and slow pace, whereas used to we we're an event kind of driven church where we'd have thousands of people at a big event that would taper off, thousands of people at a big event, so on and so forth. But those numbers would kind of keep us 
in a place. Now we're not doing that as much. So we're seeing a slow and steady growth of people as they buy in and become mature believers. Um, and not all of them multiply and not all of them truly buy in when they do it. But I, I, as I've looked at long haul, I've been there six years, three years prior to this current system and three years during it. And in that, I can just see the culture has shifted to um, what I would say healthy multiplication from, and I, I hate to say it this way, but unhealthy multiplication. I mean, it's multiplication, I guess maybe it's good, but uh, just a different vein of how church operates. And so you can see the people buying in and playing into it versus the leadership driving everything. So that, that'd be the biggest shift, I think, is people understanding it on the front end. So when we move into the, whatever it is that we're doing, they're like, oh, okay, I want to be a part of this and I get why. I'm not just doing something because pastor said. People well, the challenge... I think you always have to keep doing it, but I think the challenge with us is the way evangelism was done before, you know, 2,800 kids for dodgeball, 400 decisions, yeah. man, we're a super evangelistic church. Well, three of those people, three of those people still there the next year. Yeah. So which of those metrics do you want to celebrate? Um, so I would say it looks less evangelistic, but I think it really is more evangelistic, if that makes sense. So we don't have those, you know, crazy Super Bowl numbers but we see individuals actually doing things. So one of the metrics we've just shifted towards is like how many people are sharing the gospel versus how many people have made decisions because that's the metric that we can control. And so we're, we're visualizing that. We did a deal where we kind of set this little clear wall and you put a ping pong ball, right? Name of somebody share, put it in there. And so you see that visually, man, here are the people sharing the gospel. So based on that, I think the people are being mobilized more but mass evangelistic large number of events are happening less. So depending on how you want to look at those two things, you could answer either way. Um, I think it'll take 10 to 15 years to really know in the long run what that looks like as these things play out. Um, because I mean, again, you get 3,000 kids there, play dodgeball, have 400 decisions, whatever. That, I mean, versus this guy with three to five who are reaching a few of their friends. Um, I think the end connectivity is much greater with that. But on the front end, it just looks awesome when you see the big number. So at Long Hollow, yeah. yeah, we, I mean, this is our structure, this pathway. So everything we do, I don't know why I'm pointing to the board. Oh, there it is. Everything we do ties into this. So if we do dodgeball, which we still do, but instead of we want to get a bunch of lost kids here, share the gospel, see what kind of number we can get on the other end, which is great. I'm not saying don't do that. But how do we move those decisions into this pathway? How do we go from that decision point at that deal, listening to a gospel presentation to plugging them into biblical community? And so every question, every ministry we have, every event that we do, we ask and answer the question, how is it going to tie into this pathway and how are we going to make it? So I would say it is a simple church model, um, but we're a church moving from a lot of events and a different mechanism of how we did church to a new strategy. And so we're still even in the transition of that. And so I think it's been good. Um, but I think as far as like what happens outside of that, we still do VBS. We still do camp. Um, we still do some different retreats and things. We're just looking at a different outcome. You know, yes, we want to lead people to Christ, but we don't just want to stop there. We want to figure out how do we move those people who made decisions into the pathway and keep them on that track as part of what we're trying to do as a church. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers podcast. Have you signed up for the next National Disciple Making Forum? Every year, disciple makers from across the country and around the world gather together in one place to learn disciple making. Save your seat and register now. You can find a registration link at discipleship.org.
At checkout, use promo code PODCAST to get 20% off your tickets. In addition to this podcast, you'll find many other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.